We can waste our lives drawing lines, or we can live our lives crossing them. We can waste our lives drawing lines, or we can live our lives crossing them. I'm China Boak Terrell, and this is my colleague, Kevin Coleman. We're both mid-career students here at the Kennedy School, and we're getting our master's of public administration. And we've chosen the quote that I just said because it represents exactly why we're here tonight and why our illustrious moderator and our panelists have come. We believe that to heal the crisis in public trust among communities and police, folks, leaders, the present, uh, the present and the future, people who don't think alike, who have opposing views, and who have different responsibilities have to come together and commit to live in collaboration on this very important issue. So this is the idea that we pitched to the Center for Public Leadership and to the Office of Student, uh, Student Services, that we wanted to bring leaders together to train each other on how to bridge the divide. And we were fortunate enough to be one of three groups selected uh, to uh, selected for the Dubin Leadership Service Seminar Award. <laughs> All right, thanks again for everyone coming tonight. We're very excited about this. Um, but before we begin, we'd just like to thank uh, our many sponsors. So I have kind of a list here, otherwise I'd probably forget half of them. So uh, from Harvard Kennedy School, uh, the HKS uh, degree programs and student services and Dean Karen Jackson Weaver from the Center of Public Leadership Executive Director Petty Bellinger from the Criminal Justice Program and Policy and Management Vinnie Sheraldi, Brian Welch and Thomas Apt and from the Harvard Law School the Dean of Students Marsha Lynn Sells and the Harvard Law, Law School Criminal Justice Program through Carol Steiker and Larry Swartzel, and especially the Harvard University Institute of Politics, uh, Maggie Will Williams and her staff of the JFK Forum. Thank you uh, for your support, and I'm gonna hand it over to China to introduce our moderator for this evening. So now I know you all know our moderator because she is beloved by our Harvard students and we were lucky enough to get her to fly into town to come back tonight even though she was our IOP fall fellow. Not only is Miss Candy Crowley uh, beloved by all of us, but she is a warrior woman and I cannot think of a better person to introduce on International Women's Day. In addition to being an award-winning journalist, Ms. Crowley is one of the smartest and most acute observers uh, of politics of our time. Her authenticity is refreshing, and Kevin and I know her to be deeply devoted to truth and journalism. Ms. Crowley served as CNN's chief political correspondent and host of Sunday morning talk show, State of the Union with Candy Crowley a political hour of interviews and analysis of the week's most important issues. I know you all have seen it. Ms. Crowley has covered presidential, congressional, gubernatorial elections, and major le legislative developments on Capitol Hill for more than two decades. In the Los Angeles Times, accurately and aptly described her as no-nonsense, 
a straight shooter and characterized her career as a sophisticated political observation, graceful writing, and determined fairness. With that, will you please join us in warmly welcoming back home to Harvard, a warrior woman, Miss Candy Crowley. Thank you. Um, China and Kevin, thanks for asking me to do this. And the truth is, whatever she said is so dwarfed by the experiences of these four panelists. And it's, it's really the reason I came, because these are the sorts of people I learn from. They come from every walk of life. Please look at your programs, where you will see a lengthy uh, description of what they have done. Uh, here to my immediate left is Gary McCarthy. He has uh, headed up uh, police units and you know had been chief of police from you were deputy commissioner in New York, Newark, came in. Uh, crime rate went down during your tenure in Newark, and then in Chicago, uh, the tenure of which ended in December, and we'll get into that a little bit. You probably have heard a little bit about it in the news. Uh, we have Brittany Pagnett, who is an activist, uh, who is uh, on. Uh, appointed onto a presidential board that's looking into crime and justice issues, uh, has, uh, is active in, she's from St. Louis, has been active in the sort of the fallout from Ferguson. Anise Parker uh, is the former mayor of Houston, but honestly, <laughs> like all of these people, her resume goes way back, and she's been involved in police issues uh, since, looks like since you got out of college, so uh, for a long time. Um, Tom Jackman, uh, is a longtime crime and justice reporter working for the Kansas City Star for f 14 years, and, thank you, and uh, the Washington Post for 17 years, who also has added distinction because this is the new millennium and we believe in full disclosure, is my son-in-law. So, um, but he, is, he wasn't brought here because of that. This is not nepotism, this is because he truly knows his stuff. He uh, wrote a, um, a very, good book about a serial killer in Kansas City, and also was head of the Washington Post's, uh, the lead writer of Washington Post's uh, coverage of the massacre at Virginia Tech. So they, they just, you know, been named to Time Magazine's, uh, you know, best mayor and all kinds of things. So they know what they're talking about and they come from different things. And so I wanna start uh, with you, Gary, because uh, you were police chief and commissioner, I guess, in Chicago. Um, we had the um, Laquan McDonald situation, which, boy, it's so complicated to go back, but there was a, a tape of a young man um, that was killed by a police officer, 16 shots, uh, nine of them in the back while he was on the ground. Uh, the tape was not released until a judge forced the release of it 14 months after uh, the actual death of Laquan, uh, the city, I don't know, how would you describe how the city reacted? The city reacted as you might expect uh, the city to react to a, a video which was pretty horrible. And um, after the uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who many of us in Washington know, who's now mayor of Chicago, had said that he had the police forces back and the police commissioners back, um, December 1st was your last day on the job, correct? Um, because he was uh, was asked to leave. Is that the proper way to put it? 
Yeah, and it really didn't work out that way, but that's a whole different story. All right, okay. So, so I, I don't want to, you know, have this be about what happened, and what, but this is the first time you've spoken publicly about it. So I did want to get your version, because I will tell you that if you talk to people in the justice community, other police officers, other folks who are trying to reform uh, the system, they say, look, this, you look at this guy, he's been, you know, he pushed and pushed for reform. I mean, this is, he did any number of things. He's one of the good guys. So what went wrong here? <clears throat> so I'm a, I'm a big, uh, first of all, thank you for having me here tonight. And, I, and I'm happy that we're gonna talk about legitimacy and you brought your son-in-law. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and talked about his book at the same That's time, right? right? Um, <laughs> now available in ebook. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so, I'm a big believer in, in systems management, and that's how we run police departments today. We run them more like corporations than we ever did in the past. Uh, one of the questions somebody recently asked me was, how has policing changed since 1981? And the biggest thing is the fact that uh, police executives back in 1981, I would, I would uh, draw a correlation to being akin to a tribal leader rather than a police executive. We're, we're better educated, we're involved in police theory, um, and we exchange best practices. So the system in Chicago is not designed to produce the results that people want. I was hired five years ago to come in and reduce crime, while at the same time reforming the Chicago Police Department. And without getting into the details of how we did it, we had pretty good results. We had about a 40% reduction in overall crime in the time frame that I was there. Uh, in 2013 and 2014, we had the lowest murder rate in Chicago uh, since the mid-60s. Um, but the thing that you don't hear about that I'm most proud of is we had uh, in 2014, for instance, a 50% reduction in complaints against our officers by civilians. And in 2015, another 50% reduction compared to 2014. But the number one figure that is not out there and it, and it all goes out the window when you have a bad uh, case like Laquan McDonald, is the fact that police-related shootings were reduced by 68% during my tenure based upon policy, supervision, and training. So what went wrong? I'm just setting up what we did. I didn't tell you all the details of that. But in Chicago, and this is something that's, that's kind of troubling, communities across the country want a number of things out of the police. They want civilian oversight, to police departments? Well, Chicago has that. We have something called the police board. And the police board is the final determiner on disciplinary matters in the department. I am only allowed to make a recommendation if it's more than a 30-day suspension, okay? Less than 30 days, I could be the final determiner. But I only make a recommendation. During the course of my tenure, the police board overturned 75% of my separation cases. So that's not what people expect to hear because you want civilian oversight because you think that we're not gonna to be tough on the cops. And here's a case where three out of four times that I recommended a cop be fired, they were not fired and it was overturned by the police board. So we have civilian oversight. In Chicago and in many communities across the country, people want outside departments to conduct investigations into police use of force cases, especially police-related shootings. Well, in Chicago, we have it. It's called the Independent Police Review Authority. 
the Chicago Police Department does not investigate police-related shootings. In this case, you know, I, I think sort of more to the point that this was a case where a tape was not released for 14 months. Who was in charge of that tape? Did you push to get it out there? Because what it looks like, you know, people, you say people don't believe that, that uh, cops will be tough on cops. But of course, how that was taken was you were trying to cover for, not you personally, the police department was trying to cover for this cop, so you held on to that tape. You, you need to let me finish the, okay. the process and then I'll answer that question. The answer is I had nothing to do with it. That's the real answer. But let me explain to you why. Outside investigation by IPRA. IPRA immediately turns and enlists the efforts of the FBI, who now add another component that people want. They want a federal investigation. That's what we hear all the time. We want the US attorney to investigate, which the US attorney is investigating this case, which mind you, everybody pay attention. They haven't even concluded the grand jury. That grand jury has been impaneled, I think, for about 16 or 17 months at this point. So the US attorney and the FBI are investigating that case. Everything about that case goes to them. I saw the tape the next day because I implemented, I implemented a policy that every police-related shooting, I get a briefing the next day. In other words, the guy who's out there or the, or the woman who's out there conducting that investigation from the police department side, which is just a preliminary investigation, comes and tells us the circumstances of it. I saw the tape the next day. That was the end of my involvement until the Independent Police Review Authority recommended that I take the only disciplinary step that I could take by Illinois state law which is to strip that officer of his police authority, which I did immediately. After that, I was completely not involved in it. If you notice, uh, there was um, a FOIA request by a, by a uh, news reporter who uh, asked for all the emails involving Laquan McDonald. And there was something like 3,000 emails that were released. I don't know if anybody noticed, because nobody said it, that I was not on one email regarding that case. That was completely in the hands of the prosecutors and the investigating agency, which was the state's attorney, working with the US attorney, the FBI, and IPRA. So the answer is, we had nothing to do with it. And by the way, I'm going to say something that is not gonna be popular. If I was asked, which I wasn't, I would have recommended that we don't release it until the investigation is concluded because that has been police department practice. If we want to change that, I'm okay with it. I'm absolutely okay with it. But those are the practices of investigatory agencies across this country, and they have been for time immemorial. If we want to change it, I'm okay with that. But under the, under the standards that we were using, I would have recommended we don't release it until the investigation is completed. Brittany, listening to the story, and the, I think you know the problem is that we've we I feel like we've seen a lot of stories out of a lot of Ferguson was closest to home for you. Are the wrong people in charge? I mean, because nothing undermines police legitimacy, and by that I don't mean the people in charge or the wrong titles in charge of you know the tapes or that what happens to the police officer, but more importantly, the legit nothing undermines police legitimacy more than videos like this. 
I think it's because they're so public and, and tend to uh, turn into street problems. I would push a bit and say that nothing undermines police legitimacy like the killing of people like Laquan McDonald, right. right, before the video even gets shot. Um, and you know, when the, when the Department of Justice released um, its initial report on issues in Ferguson, what I think was really powerful about that report was that half of it were people's stories. So I live in Florissant, Missouri, which is a part of the St. Louis County network. It's about 12, I live about 12 minutes from Ferguson. I, spent a lot of my time growing up in Ferguson. Um, and I could tell you a bunch of the stories that were in that report before the report ever came out. Because too often we do not treat the lived experience of marginalized people like real data and evidence, even though this is what we had known to be our reality for a long time. So we didn't need a video or a, a DOJ report or anything like that to um, already have us in a place where um, uh, police and uh, corresponding structures and, and, and systems were, had already been delegitimized, right? Like, let's be very clear about that. Um, you know, I, I, you said a couple of things that I think are, are significant to think about. Um, you know, I, in my, in my full-time work, I, I run Teach for America in St. Louis, and while it is obviously a much smaller enterprise than a police department, Every time someone comes to me and says that they don't like their child's teacher or that their child isn't learning enough or if one of my teachers feels like they're not being trained properly enough, whether or not I've been on the email chain, it's still my responsibility, right? And so, I, you know, I, and I respect that you have to be here and tell your story. This is one of the first chances you've had to do it. Um, but I also think that when we talk about tradition, we go, we have to go past 1981, right? We have to go past 1881. We have to look at the roots of systemic oppression and racism in this country. Uh, because when we think about the concept of plantation policing for my ancestors, we were not talking about serving and protecting. We were not talking about some of the rules and regulations we're talking about now. We're talking about entire systems that were set up to control marginalized people as property, right? And so these conversations, I think, are important. But we have to make sure that we're not ahistorical when we're having them and that we I, so I just push us past the premise that things start with the video, or that things start with the report, or that things start um, when when protests be, begin in a city. Right? That this um, this has real roots in uh, systemic injustice and the way that systems have been set up to to ensure um, that we see results like this. Right. I think probably what I meant was broader, uh, sure. broader knowledge of the the sorts of things. Because you look and you think, boy, if this happened once. Heaven only knows how many times it's happened that we, there wasn't somebody there with a camera or a cop yeah, with a camera. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's really scary, right? And this, is, this was the point I was making about um, the lived experiences of people of color and people living on the margins being important data and evidence for us to be listening to because it shouldn't have taken us seeing Walter Scott getting shot in South Carolina for us to believe that these kinds of things happen when people have been saying it for, for decades even, right? Um, and so, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that point. There's certainly a, a broader base of knowledge. And let's be clear, right, that it is protesters and young people that decided to make sacrifices with their body that have us at this point where we are right now. So, Mayor, when you listen to uh, this from the activist point of view and from the law and order point of view and the police point of view, where's the, what's the thing that, that starts to change this situation? Is it 
in the training, and you all jump in whenever you want, Tommy, as, you, uh, uh, as well as you. Is this about training? Is it about attitude? Is it about um, you know, community policing? I know it was something that you uh, had in Chicago. Um, what's, where do you start? Because it just seems so, even researching this, it's like there's so many different things that seem like they need to change. This is about perception as much as it is about reality. And, and public safety is equally about the absence of crime as it is about the presence of justice and the perceived presence of justice. And it, it, it starts long before an incident. In the best of all possible worlds, you want a police department that looks like the community it polices. If you can't have that, you want a police department that understands the community it polices. And that is in the community it polices in, in some form of uh, uh, community-oriented policing. If it's about, but, but, it's so, but it's not just about that, it's also about the kind of training that officers receive, the, the discipline structure within the department, the feedback loop from the community to the department, and it all has to work. And uh, why we should be surprised when, when some element or another of that very complicated feedback loop gets out of whack. And when, then when you put that in the, the historical context, it's actually probably more surprising that overall it works pretty well until there is some spectacular incident that, that, that causes everybody to sit up and, and take notice. The two, in, in my time as, as mayor, we probably had, we had well over 100 police shootings. Uh, two that, that stand out, one was a gentleman by the name of uh, Brian Clonch, who was a paraplegic, one arm, one leg, in a wheelchair, armed with a silver ball, ball, ball point pin. Now, it was in the middle of the night, it was in a dark, house, no lights, and uh, he suddenly wheeled his wheelchair and trapped a police officer in a corner, wielding what all the police officer saw was this ballpoint pen. In any police department in America, that is a justified shooting. He, he was, was trapped, he shot. And shot and killed. He was, the officer was, the, was trapped, there, no other witnesses but another, another police officer. The fault is on the officer for allowing himself to be put in that position in the first place. Now, we also had an incident which is not a police shooting, but a police beating caught on videotape, uh, a young burglar by the name of Chad Hawley. And I call him out specifically as a young burglar because he had a, he has a, he's been caught a number of times since then. But uh, the, it was a tact team, which means it was a special police unit trying to knock down burglaries in a community. And they were, they were watching. Was watching. They were watching a neighborhood, and they, they saw the burglary. They chased the suspects. They jumped out of their. The suspects jumped out of the vehicle, ran in different directions. Chad Hawley happens to be caught on a security video camera, and uh, I watched the, the video soon after we re received it. He gets the ever eleven snot beat out of him by police officers, kicking him, punching him, jumping on him. Uh, we would not have known about it except this 
We found out about it because a police car tries to box him in and knocks down a portion of the fence for Uncle Buddy's used store it. And Uncle Buddy's wants to know why their fence was damaged. And so they review the videotape, see the beating, and, and send it in. But to the chief's point, my chief fired every one of those police officers. A civilian arbitrator put them back on the department. Now, they're going to spend the rest of their careers in the property room, but they were put back on the department. I think the police don't do a great job of putting their side of the story out. I don't understand how you could be the fall guy for something that you weren't involved in. Right? You weren't investigating the shooting, but yet you uh, were put out of a job by the mayor. I don't get that. I, I think that a lot of the times the police do not manage their message well. Uh, I've heard from many police chiefs about how, and you and I were just talking about this too, how strict they are with disciplining their own people. I think it would surprise the public to know how many police officers get fired for dishonesty, just basic lying without ever touching another human being because police chiefs don't stand for that stuff. And the, the things that you said about three-fourths of your recommendations being overturned by the civilian board, I think that would be fascinating to people. And I think that the public uh, in general uh, wants to believe in their police department. They want to be, uh, they want to feel like the police department represents them. They don't want an us against them relationship. And I don't think that in a lot of cases the police do a good job, that they're often too hesitant or slow to get their version out. I've often wondered what would have happened if the Ferguson police had been, I don't want to say aggressive, but maybe more efficient in presenting their version of events before their city burned. Uh, I don't know, maybe they felt like they couldn't do that. I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you would have done in that situation. Uh, but you know, there were, they also had a lack of legitimacy in terms of their own uh, you know, connection to the community. In fact, they had none. And so the, that was already a tinderbox waiting to, to explode. And uh, their response to that situation was to leak a video of the kid in a convenience store. And so I think that just made their police department look worse versus trying to put out a version of events that was different from hands up, don't shoot, which became the defining slogan of that event uh, for a long time. Oh, wait a minute. The police department doesn't have a position that the mayor doesn't approve of. Because if, what happens is if the police chief gets out in front of the mayor, that police chief is out of a job. This is a political context. And as, as much as you want to, to say, yeah, the police department needs to get their message out, and I agree with you, they need to do a better job of that, but this is a political system, and that it, it is about the political fallout around it, the, the perception of what happened as much as the reality of what happened. Can but I you wouldn't hinder your own police chief from putting out a message, would you? Sorry, Brandon. No. Okay. <laughs> Not Chuck McClellan. You know my chief. I know Chuck. Go ahead, Brittany. Given the, um, the reference to Ferguson, you know, I will say that before there was any communication from the Ferguson Police Department, peaceful people decided to come out of their homes to figure out what was going on, and the, the department's response was to bring German Shepherds out in an African-American community, right? So forget about sharing a message. They, like, the continued actions, not just about what Darren Wilson did to Mike Brown, but for all of the subsequent weeks in which peaceful protesters were treated like enemy combatants instead of democratic citizens, that was when we continued to have a challenge, right? Um, what, what I am hearing, though, is in the, the place of common ground that I'm hearing that may be explicit or implicit 
is that we are all referencing systems that are larger than the police department that, that are, are contributing to this problem, right? We have to be talking about municipal governance. We have to be talking about um, uh, criminal justice systems. We have to be talking about municipal courts. Um, a lot of the things that Ferguson helped shine a light on. We also have to be talking, to your point, about how we are building strong and safe communities from the ground up. Because I, would I don't actually want to be out there protesting, right? I've been tear gassed three times in my life. I was at the hospital last week because I was having chest pains because there's bruising in my, in my lungs, right? And there are young people, right, people half my age, people twice my age, people three times my age that are still um, dealing with the effects of that. So we are doing this because we have to, not because it is, it is enjoyable or sexy for us, right? And I think we would all love to get to the place where we don't have to have conversations about the effects of over-policing communities from the top down, because all of these systems that were built to work against us are actually working for us to be building strong communities from the ground up, especially for marginalized people. Steve, I think you agree with that. It, it was funny because one of the things when I read some of what uh, Brittany has written, she made the same point that you made to me on the phone, which is, this is yes, the police are, are a, certainly a part of what's wrong, but this is rage and protest against a system, not just the policing. Yes, and, and Brittany, you'd be surprised to hear how much common ground we have, actually have, because Tom, I wanted to stop you and say, you know, using Ferguson as an example for communications, don't use him as an example for anything. Because we were, we were, all, we were all aghast in law enforcement, watching what happened during the protests, because at, the 21st Century Task Force uh, meeting that I attended, I spoke about uh, mass demonstrations. And the first thing I said is that the police can turn a demonstration into a riot. And we watched it happen. Not just German Shepherds, Bearcats, sniper rifles, um, uh, SWAT officers, not tactical officers, SWAT officers on the front line. The worst example, period. And that's one place where we could start and agree. But the other thing is, is what you just referenced and, and something I think this is probably the right audience to speak to about this. Um, I, always, I always talk about you have, to ha you have to take the right medicine for what ails you. And people should definitely be outraged about police shootings, especially bad police shootings, right? And <laughs> When I say you should be outraged about police shootings, I'm talking about the fact that criminals have guns and point them at officers and officers shoot them, let alone when police officers make mistakes or criminal acts that police officers make. You should be outraged about all of them, first of all. But second of all, I refer to what's been happening in this country. The police can do better, don't get me wrong, but I refer to it as legal cynicism on steroids. Because if you think about it, the rage that comes out of the disenfranchised communities over the last how many years, I'm not sure, it builds around poverty, lack of resources, lack of opportunity, lack of jobs, the breakup of the family unit, poor health care, lead in the water, what's happening in Flint. All of these things happen in a disenfranchised community, and it represents a bigger failed system of which the police is the most visible component and does the most interaction with that community. So they become the focus. I'm talking about the police. Now I call them they, not we. How about that? Huh? You know, I was just thinking, so if I hadn't gotten out in front of the mayor 
I might still have my, oh wait, I didn't get out in front of him, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I understood that. Of course, no, absolutely. Would you agree with that assessment that it is so many things? It's a smaller component of a bigger issue. And, and that is, you know, that is why I um, I talked about this issue of systemic racism and, and oppression. You know, a, a lot of folks look at the movement, um, and one of the biggest critiques is that our focus is too narrow. Um, and I have always maintained that um, police violence is a branch that grows out of a larger tree that is based in systemic oppression and racism, right? So are all, all of the ills that you listed, right? Inadequate housing, inequitable education, issues with healthcare. So the point is not just to break off one branch, the point is to uproot the entire tree, right? That's how we handle all of it. Um, I think I would, the one place where I would disagree is that, you know, I, I honestly, and, and I walk into schools every single day and I, you know, teach, uh, the teachers that come into to our region in St. Louis every single year about the ways in which tax and housing patterns very intentionally put certain kids in certain schools and then services left those neighborhoods and went to other neighborhoods where there was affluence, right? So I actually wouldn't say that the systems are broken. I would say that they're working exactly as they're intended to, that they are punishing the same people that they've always been intentional to punish, which is part of the reason why this incredible act of democracy that we are seeing all over the country, including here at Harvard, right? And the way that students here have stood up for um, not just uh, symbols of oppression, right, but actual oppression that you all are facing on campus and in this region have been incredibly important um, at, because that is the full exercising of democracy, right? And actually coming outside of these spaces that are continuing to harm us and holding the folks that are inside of them accountable to something totally and radically different. Assuming that we can't tonight fix the system and, and go uh, back down to s sort of the, the, the first step, police recruitment. Is there anything that needs to be fixed about the way most communities recruit? I know we've, t Tommy, you and I have talked about the fact that, that military people are almost always, yeah, come on. And then we wonder why Officer Friendly turned into G.I. Joe, the kind of thing you're talking about in Ferguson, all of a sudden the tanks are out and the you know, all that kind of stuff. So it, what about recruitment needs to be fixed? First of all, a better racial divide. Well, um, we've been looking in law enforcement for who has the best model. I said we share best practices. Um, who has the best model as far as recruitment goes and, and what we could do? Um, some places claim this works, other places claim this works, um, and, and the search is on. There's not a department in the country uh, that I know of that is saying, we've got the best recruitment policy, this works. What I keep hearing is we're failing. So we're, we're, they are in search of that. I was. Um, I don't know what the answer to it is, honestly. What, what I did was, I'm sorry, there's Mayor. There's really a self-selection problem. Those who, are, those who are drawn to police work may not be the ones that you necessarily want to fill your ranks with. And yes, it's very easy to recruit out of the military and because you have, you have someone who's disciplined, someone who generally would have a good record, they could pass your background check and so forth, but uh, law enforcement and soldiering are different occupations. And, I, and this is like the Russian philosophy. We're going from the warrior to the guardian, I'm sure you've heard about that. Training officers uh, in a different fashion, not necessarily way that I was trained in 1981, 
when police assassinations were still happening uh, in, in across the country. Um, so that is, that is a whole different philosophy that we're, they're pushing. When I first started looking at police departments in the, in the early 80s, and I was a liaison for the GLBT community in Houston to the Houston Police Department long before I got into to politics, and it was about a police officer was, was supposed to be in charge of the situation. You come in and you take control, and now it is you come and you assess the situation, and you, and you it's not that I'm going to go in into the middle of it. There was a study that was done by the FBI years ago um, where they interviewed, I think it was 50 separate um, persons who were convicted of murdering a police officer, and they did it across the country, and, and there was only one commonality that they found, was they were looking to develop, to develop tactics that officers could use to protect themselves, and the only common, common factor that they found was the fact that the officer didn't take command of the situation when they first got there. So officers are trained to first take control of a situation tactically, but then that transition from being in charge tactically to de-escalating now, hey, everybody relax, let me tell you what's going on, this is why I did this, this is why I did that, has to do with procedural justice and police legitimacy, which the reason why those complaints against our officers in Chicago went down so dramatically over the last few years, Phil Goff's here, um, working with folks like Phil Goff, uh, Tom Tyler and Tracy Mears came to Chicago and helped us craft a training program for legitimacy that people from across the country have come and we're training the trainers, they're training the trainers, and taking it back to these other departments across the country. It's about giving people uh, a voice, and it's about every interaction being a teachable moment. And the question is, what are you learning and what are you teaching all at the same time? But that danger zone at the beginning of a confrontation or at the beginning of an interaction is, is the flashpoint that, that has to somehow get dissected and come up with a better way of doing it. But what you talked about, coming in and taking tactical, tactical control and then shifting to the de-escalation techniques and, and, and moving into that, that is a, that is a training element that, that has changed in, 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 in policing. And we are gonna have to, I think we also need to take a step back and have that conversation what is the citizen's responsibility in these circumstances as well? It's not just about the police officers, it's also about those who encounter police officers. To a certain extent, legitimacy has to come first, because you can't, you can't, if you have entire communities or pockets in communities that don't, that, that think the police have overused their power, abused their power, uh, don't come by it, uh, you know, in a way that's justified, um, it's, it's a little hard to say now, I want you to recognize that this is the legitimate use. It's, the badge just isn't no, good I enough at this point. No, I would say safety comes first. I mean, I, I'm sorry to disagree with you, but uh, yes, you want the legitimacy, but the safety for all concerned ought to be. Can I, I, I want to agree with Brittany again. <laughs> I want to agree with Brittany again, because something that I talk about, that's because you don't know me that well. We've talked before. Not like this. <laughs> One of the things that I talk about constantly <laughs> is the fact that the experience of the African-American community in this country started with slavery being written into the Constitution of the United States. We're not going to reverse 300, 400, 500 years of history, which will provide us with legitimacy. 
And who was it, as we move forward, whether it was segregation, black codes, uh, Jim Crow, all of those racist policies that were law, who was enforcing it? It was the white police officer. So at the end of the day, that narrative exists in the community. I realized this years ago, I'm gonna skip the story, but it had to do with my dad being a World War II Marine. And 45 years later, couldn't let go of it. And it dawned on me that the Civil Rights Act was signed in the early 60s. It's early 60s. I was alive, a lot of you weren't. Early 60s. We can't reverse that, that's one thing. Now look at some of the experience of some of the Hispanics who come to this country and police legitimacy. What's the experience of people in Mexico as far as police legitimacy or South America? So at the end of the day, you can't say that it has to come first. There has to be a recognition of what occurred. It has to be an understanding that some people come to the table viewing history through the prism of their parents and their parents' parents. And this is the way they learned it. Can't change what happened. We can change what's going to happen, though. It also turns the concept of safety on its That's head, That's like right? two or because three, Brittany, I... I want you to know. <laughs> Ign noted. Um, <laughs> you know, but that also turns the safety of, of con uh, uh, the concept of safety on its head, right? Because um, when I, I have a lot of friends in D.C. I lived there for almost six years. And um, the mayor there proposed that one of the ways to handle um, an, an increase in crime that they feel that they have traced to returning citizens, right? So formerly incarcerated folks reentering the community. They've traced this increase in crime supposedly to them. And the solution that was proposed was to have more police on the streets. This was uh, proposed just a few days or weeks after Natasha McKenna was killed in um, a Northern Virginia jail. And so a number of these protesters got up there and said, I don't feel more safe with more police in my community. Actually, I feel less safe, right? And um, that is not just because these were some, some of these are folks who um, have decided to make their voices heard and have, like many of us, um, received retaliation from folks in places of power because of that, uh, but just because they're everyday people who endure stop and frisk, right, who endure a lot of these uh, practices and procedures that have made them afraid in their own communities from uniformed officers. And so I, want, I just want to challenge that notion of safety because it doesn't mean the same thing for everyone given who you are and where you come from. And I'm, I don't think that that's what you were asserting, but we have to complicate what safety means because it means different things to different people. Um, and I also, you know, the, the first meeting of the, um, the president's task force, we were also in DC, and I asked the head of a national police union if citizens and police officers have an equal amount of responsibility in these situations, right? Because we so often hear this phrase, you know, trust, right, and community police relations. And what troubles me about what I think sometimes is hidden behind that is the idea that these folks are equal participants in this relationship, right? But all Michael Brown did was jaywalk in the street and be born into a black body, right? He didn't choose a certain profession. He didn't take an oath. He didn't pass any kind of licensure exams. He didn't have to graduate from a certain academy. He was not the professional in that situation. And so as we talk about these issues of recruitment and training, et cetera, there also has to be a recognition that a public servant of any kind, a police officer, a teacher, a mayor, whomever it is, derives their power from the people. And if they can't enter a situation respectfully with those same people, then they shouldn't be in that profession because they have additional responsibility in that situation. 
Uh, turn uh, let the audience ask some questions to you all. Um, let me just first tell you that there's a microphone here. There's a microphone here. There's one in the general direction I'm pointing, and then another one over here as well. But uh, on the idea of, I mean, it sounds to me like chicken and egg, right? Like it's hard to know where you start in terms of solutions. You start for by recognizing where we came from. Well, how do you, how, uh, practically speaking, okay. Practically speaking, how does that begin? Like who recognizes what going into these communities? Yes, absolutely. I've had that conversation across the city of Chicago. Except then we saw what happened in Chicago in, in, you know, after the tapes were out. What does that have to do with the history? I don't understand. Well, no, well, I, but that there were protests? And if you go back and look at the news, I said, we will have protests but we're not gonna have riots. Because we're going to be tolerant, we're going to protect the First Amendment rights of those protesters, and we're gonna be intolerant of criminal behavior. That's exactly what happened. Now in talking to people across the city, what progress did you make? How do you think that, how did you do? What progress was made when I was there? Mm -hmm. um, I have gotten universal support, Tom, from every single person, black, white, green, purple across the city. Everybody who I've run into, not one person has said anything negative to me. So the progress was being made. Um, right now we've got a 120% increase in the murder rate in the city of Chicago. And you know, there's consequences for everything. And whether it's my firing, whether it's the police officers who now feel, you know, it, my colleagues across the country, Folks like Tom Manger and Chuck McClellan say things to me like, well, Gary, if they got you, and you were one of the most progressive, uh, reform-minded police leaders in the country, then they can get any one of us. And then the police officers in Chicago are saying the same thing to me, which is, <laughs> if that's how you were treated, what would they do to me? And, you know, I'm worried about my mortgage, my house, my family, and, and how do I, how do I, juxtapose these two positions. So we're in a world of mess right now in Chicago. Let me invite you all, if you have questions for anybody in the panel, to come on up. There's you know, your basic Harvard rules. Please tell me, us, who you are. Um, please make it a question, and please make it a short question. So we can get some more of you. Is this on? OK. Mm -hmm. My name is Antonio Copete. I'm a postdoc at the Center for Astrophysics here at Harvard. Um, I, I wanted to uh, recount an incident that I had just a few years ago here uh, uh, by, the, um, by the Mount Auburn Hospital on, on, of, uh, on Memorial Drive, an incident that I believe was an incident of racial profiling uh, when a police officer uh, pulled me over when I was driving um, and basically came and, you know, asked, uh, you know, uh, asked us a series of questions that are very personal in a very aggressive manner about me, about my passengers. Um, and, and, and basically, he only calmed down. He only kind of uh, uh, stopped being, you know, uh, uh, as threatening after I explained to him that I was actually a PhD student in astrophysics here at Harvard and that my black passenger in the back of the car was a postdoc in nanotechnology at MIT. Um, so uh, in the end, he told us that the reason he had pulled us over was because supposedly the lights on my license plate were off. 
uh, which actually turned out to be a lie because they, the, the lights were actually working. Um, so the, the next day I went to the police uh, station right across the river to report the incident to say that I had been the subject of, of an incident of racial profiling. And the first thing that came out of the mouth of the, of the officer that, re that was receiving the report was, oh, so you're playing the race card, right? Um, I mean, that, that, that was the first thing that came, that came out of his mouth. And basically what happened at the end was he refused to take the incident that I, I mean, he's re he refused to take the written report that I was there to file. And also he was basically trying to make me feel bad and telling me that in, I was being disrespectful to the work of the police and that, um, and, and, and that um, I'm sorry, and that uh, I, I should rather be grateful that I didn't get a ticket for that incident. So my question is, um, is what are the standard police practices around the country when it comes to reporting this kind of incidents of racial profiling? Because at least in my experience, the, the, it seems that there's the, the, the culture seems to be a culture that, that doesn't even encourage reporting of these incidents or collecting this data. This incident that I just, recounting, it, it doesn't appear anywhere because the, the police officer refused to actually take the, even take the report. Well, all I, all I can say is, first of all, it sounds like that shouldn't have happened. Second of all, what I can tell you is that in both Newark and Chicago, uh, we used to have a program where undercovers would go in and report incidents to make complaints and find out if they were reported. And when, when they were not reported, uh, we took disciplinary action against the officers. So I can't say uh, what the, sta the standard procedure should be that somebody wants to make a complaint, you take a complaint, period. That's the standard that we use in the NYPD. That's the standard that I impressed on both Newark and Chicago. And where officers didn't comply, that I was able to find out about it, we disciplined. And the best way to do that was through me dictating that we were going to do test cases. We did stings on officers, and it worked. And as soon as we started doing them, we had like a 90% pass rate. And then after we started disciplining people, we had a 100% pass rate. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know of a police department that, that doesn't, where anybody should be a gatekeeper for a police complaint. If no. you make a complaint in, in, in Houston. Uh, now, we did change it after I came in. And we used to have this big warning at the front that you were filling out, it was a sworn statement on, on the threat of, of perjury, and we took, we took that out. You can, you can download a police complaint off the internet now and send it in. You have to sign it. It's not going to be an anonymous complaint, but there's no gatekeeper, and there shouldn't be, and that's inappropriate. You, you know, I just, I just had a, a, an incident with TSA maybe about a month ago, and it took me, I literally, like, just left the White House, right, which is wild. And I shouldn't have to tell you this, right? You shouldn't have to be like, I'm a genius and I go to Harvard and MIT for you to take me seriously, right? Um, even though you are. Right? Um, they shouldn't, you shouldn't have to justify yourself in that way. Your humanity should be enough, right? But it took me having to be able to call up so-and-so, right, and know the right person to be able to force something and have a legitimate following on Twitter and tweet the heck out of DCA airport, TSA, at their, both of their Twitter handles in order to get some traction on this thing, all of that shouldn't be, right? And, I'm, and I'm, I want to both affirm what you were saying, because like you said, it, it absolutely shouldn't have happened, but also just to give the message, right? I mean, this is a policy forum, right? You are current and future national civic world leaders. You will be leading institutions. That is why it is so critical to build radically inclusive institutions. It's absolute, and this is not just happening in police departments, right? 
2,000 kids from Boston Public Schools were out in the streets protesting yesterday because they felt like a school system, a school system that's supposed to be the center of democracy wouldn't even let them engage democratically, right? So they had to take their fight to the streets because they couldn't even get their fight addressed in school, right? That is a problem. And so as you are thinking about the work that you do now and for the rest of your life, I hope that you enter that work with a totally different mindset. Instead of being a gatekeeper to tradition, that you are actually building a radically inclusive society. We are actually building an inclusive society. Tom, do you want to get on, on this one? OK, let me go up here. Hello? Oh, hi. My name is Carolyn. I'm a student at the college. Um, I was curious to hear what your thoughts are on the Peter Vang case in New York um, and how that's been handled by the judicial system and the public backlash both in support and against um, the officer. I don't know this case. I don't, do I, don't, case? I don't know a lot about it except what I've read in the news. And we know that's always true, right? <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> But I, it, it seemed to me, um, you know, every action has a reaction, as I said earlier. And the reaction of, of some of the systems, um, I believe, are overcharging police officers at this point. And I, that could be a case where, where that's what's happening. Um, because if I understand correctly, he was charged with murder, which means he intentionally shot and killed this individual where he described that he accidentally fired a shot, if mm -hmm. I understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. So I don't know enough about it, but mm -hmm. there is a reaction there in the, in the system that's happening. I know that. I, you know, it, um, this isn't about the case specifically, but one of the things that I've noticed in particular coming out of that conversation is how much people have leveraged that to um, create divisiveness between people of color, right? Or to yeah. highlight it where it exists and leverage it and, and take it take unfortunate advantage of it. Um, because you got an Asian officer and a black victim, right? And I, you know, I never use the word minority because people of color are actually the global majority, right? And the thing that systems are really afraid of is if we get hip to that and get really wise and start working with each other straight up, right? And so I, I think that you're, it's an important question um, and one of the things that I'm hopeful that we do uh, in this movement is really just find legitimate opportunities for solidarity and that we take those moments seriously and we take our responsibility in those moments seriously um, because there is work that we need to be doing together and for one another. From Pakistan, a senior superintendent of police, uh, LKY fellow uh, from Singapore. Uh, I have, uh, like, I am a little surprised uh, about uh, uh, the talk that, that uh, I listened uh, regarding two statements. One was, like, uh, the history of U.S. allowing uh, the, uh, the killing, like, some sort of uh, slavery in a form. But, but the slavery doesn't mean the killing, number one. And the second statement by the mayor that if the chief had said something, I would have removed her, him or her. Like, uh, this is uh, something, it sounds like a too much authority uh, on one side. Uh, the, the second thing is that uh, on one side, uh, the morale of police is going down. Uh, the chief of police is trying to build the morale. Uh, people are are uh, creating some different kind of issues. So it's a very complex situation. Uh, uh, what about uh, diversity in uh, recruitment? 
making more uh, black people in the police so that they can include in the force and some culture develops in such a manner that they, they are inclusive changing some firing policies allowing uh, arms to be carried only on certain occasions not every time they they, uh, they may be allowed to carry arms or how to use arms and when to use arms like change in the standard operating procedures what about that First, let me say that I was really making a, a point in that police chiefs across America are often appointees of the mayor, and it is a political system. And while I have a great relation or had a great relationship with my with my police chief, and we communicated, and, and I don't believe in throwing people under the bus, uh, it's it is a fact that. Uh, Every city department director, including chiefs, understand that they are in a political system and they serve at the, the pleasure of their mayor. I also say that I led a city in Texas, which is awash in guns. And the idea that I would send a police officer out unarmed, it's not going to happen. I do know also that police departments have tried, as long as I've been covering police, to try to recruit more in the minority community, particularly in the Asian and Hispanic populations, and those, you touched on it briefly, a lot of those people emerge from cultures where police legitimacy is not a thing. They don't talk about it. It's, it's, they're not concerned about police legitimacy. We're the police, you're not. And so it is not seen as an honorable profession or a good thing, and so it's really hard for police to recruit Asian and Hispanic officers to create the sort of legitimacy in this country that police departments want. And I think that's been an ongoing problem, unless you figured that out. Has a, uh, my police department is a majority minority police department. Uh, it, it is, it is not a, a a white police department, and it has been a majority minority police department for a long time. It's not just uh, what your department looks like; it's it's the culture, and the attitude and the training of that department as well. I, I, I would agree with this point um, about it not just being what the department looks like, and I you know I make a lot of comparisons to teaching because just really love kids. Um, but, you know, in the, the TSA incident that I was referring to, that was carried out by a black officer, right? Um, and I, I will never forget um, when I first started as executive director of TFA in St. Louis three years, three and a half years ago, we had a, a teacher who was supposed to be the answer, right? Teach for America places a, a really large emphasis on recruiting and selecting a very diverse cadre of teachers, about half of our teachers, incoming teachers this year were people of color, um, which is you know, a real over-representation, and we do that on purpose. But this woman was like supposed to be the answer, right? She was teaching at the middle school that she graduated from in an unaccredited school district as an African-American woman, came in with a lot of the right mindsets about justice and the importance of education in that, and understood her role in that, um, and yet she uh, ended up leaving about a year into the two-year core experience. And a lot of her, you know, a lot of folks on my team spent a lot of time with her, right? Trying to coach her and trying to get to what the root of her challenges were. Um, but a lot of the ways in which she was approaching um, young people and a lot of the ways in which she was approaching her colleagues were incredibly deficit-based. And it wasn't until I had completely failed with her, right? And I, I had failed her that I realized we had done so much to talk about white privilege and, 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 um, and systemic racism that we hadn't 
done the kind of necessary healing work that we have to do for people of color to deal with our own internalized oppression. So she was carrying those things out in her classroom. And it was becoming a real challenge. We were, in effect, perpetuating white privilege because all we ever talked about was white privilege, right? Um, and so it wasn't enough that she reflected the community that she, in very literal ways, reflected the community that she was serving. It wasn't enough that we had a more diverse core every single year. We also have to make sure that we engaged in, and, and now we do um, an entire series that is deeply embedded in our training on racial identity development based on Dr. Beverly Tatum's work um, and some others so that people are understanding fully who they are and all of the things that they bring to this space, whether it's the internalized stuff, the biases, whatever. Uh, because yeah, it's not just about what you look like, it's also about how we are building you to go and, and be and be a professional in certain spaces. And I promise you 30 seconds or less, just on the flip side of that, um, there's other things besides what you look like or what race or ethnicity you come from that has to do with the way that you can police. New York City had one of the worst horrific uh, incidents of police brutality in the history of policing in the Abner Louima incident in the 7-0 precinct in Brooklyn. And in the wake of that incident, the NYPD sent a new commander to the 70th precinct. Um, me. And obviously there was enormous racial tension at the time. Don't shake my genetic tree, because you'd be surprised at some of the things that would fall out. But at the end of the day, I was able to accomplish things that other people there, whether they were African American or whatever race they were, were not able to accomplish. So it can actually happen. Can you go up here? I've got to try to make it short, because I, I'm going to take this next story and put two of them in here. Sure. Run over time, so um, sorry. So Oliver Ho, uh, international development student here at the Kennedy School. Um, uh, it seems to me that the way that criminal justice uh, proceedings are proceeding um, is kind of hurting both reform-minded police departments and the communities in which uh, some of these incidents are happening. Um, and I, I just want to hear from the panel what changes they would see concrete given the difficulty in reforming some of the control systems um, they would like to see in terms of the process the speed uh, and the standards that are put in place um, regarding some of the, the police violence incidents. We're gonna spend a whole lot of money on uh, body-worn camera systems and, and with the idea that if we just have a picture of what happened, that that'll solve the problem. It will reduce complaints, it will reduce shootings, but it will create a whole separate set of problems. And policing is the, the single most expensive item in any city budget. And when you add all of that uh, video evidence that we're going to have to retain, it's, it's going to shoot the cost of policing up dramatically. There's one thing that's going to change in the future. I'd like to say that police reform is in fact happening, and it has been happening. When, when the, the 21st Century Task Force on Policing that Brittany was a part of was published, the Chicago Police Department had already implemented 92% of the recommendations in that document and the other 8% were against Illinois state law or contractual obligations. The police executives of today are not the police executives of yesterday. Chuck McClellan is a mountain of a man and he's one of the most intelligent, articulate men that I've ever met in my life. And he's, he's thoughtful, he's intellectual. 
Now, it doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen. And when they do, we have to take the right measures. One of the things that people love to say to me in Chicago, they say, man, you got screwed, but somebody had to take the hit. I said, you're right. And the person who's going to take the hit is going to be the person who committed the act. And at the end of the day, police legitimacy in Chicago took an enormous hit and people are dying at record numbers right now as a result. There's a consequence for that. We have to recognize that if we don't like the way the system works, change the system, right? If I described to you that all the things that people wanted from police oversight and outside investigatory agencies exist. And at the end of the day, they didn't like the results. And somebody had to take the fall, somebody had to take the hit. Hi. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, you know, I, I really want my answer to be to like stop electing racist people to be county prosecutors, which was our issue in St. St. Louis. Um, I, you know, I absolutely agree about changing the system. So I work with a group of three other activists uh, on a platform called Campaign Zero. We've got ten. Um, policy buckets toward ending police violence in America. The 10th one always surprises people because we call it fair police union contracts. People are like, what are you talking about? What we're actually talking about is fair to the community because, and we've had this conversation before, um, but in addition to these issues of community oversight, prosecutorial misconduct, all of those kinds of things, police union contracts in particular offer a lot of protection in the name of procedural justice or due process that are actually just over and above what people should be receiving. There is no way that a union contract should allow for an officer to have to, um, to have 10 days before they can be interviewed in an incident of police-involved police shooting, right? Um, there is absolutely, like, there are just, and you can go to, um, we have a, a website called checkthepolice.org, and you can kind of see our report on police union contracts in particular, because we do a deep dive on that bucket. Um, but uh, that I think is another one of the places where we can see immediate change. And you know, I we had a task force meeting about in January, um, and I sat across from a number of heads of national police union organizations who were all saying, "Well, the changes are too expensive, right? The, you, I, you, you weren't saying it, but the the things in the task force report are too expensive to do." And I was like, "Well, here are four things that you can change in your collective bargaining agreement that are free, right? So actually, if people put on that kind of pressure, we should be able to see those changes." That's true, although a lot of those things are prescribed in state law, so you, you do have Some to think about yeah. this lesson and why you shouldn't get so many people who know what they're talking about on the same <laughs> panel. Go ahead. Uh, uh, thanks. Uh, Jed Schwartz from uh, Somerville. So uh, uh, there was a, a, a series, uh, some settlements about uh, uh, Chicago police inflicting uh, pain or uh, torture on uh, victims in, in the years, I think it must have been well before your tenure uh, superintendent, but uh, I think it, uh, uh, th there were reparations given down to the victims of these uh, horrific procedures. I was unable to, had been unable to determine the, 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 ma the, the size, the, 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 the magnitude of the, of the awards. I wonder whether you had that information available to you. And uh, don't, you, uh, don't you agree that, that really the, the, the like a city like Chicago where there is very high unemployment and, and high levels of despair despite uh, Reverend Jackson's old invocation to keep help alive. That, that, that make, the, the, the greater the unemployment, the greater the difficulty of, 
upholding job, the more difficult it is for the police to do their work. Yes. But do you have the magnitude of the, of the, of the reparational no, work? No, I don't. I, uh -huh. I don't recall it. It, it. My recollection of it when I did the math is that it was not a whole heck of a lot of money for any individual. It was, it was you know, maybe a couple of thousand dollars. That's all, yeah. Thank I you. think. Okay, you know to be quick. For Tom Jackman, is this just a black issue or are there differences? You're covering um, the shooting death of John Greer um, in Northern Virginia. His trial is April 15th. He was a white guy. Um, is that situation being handled differently? For Brittany, um, is an unintended and unfortunate consequence of the movement the fact that we're losing good reformers like, I don't know, Anthony Batts, Chief uh, Superintendent McCarthy? Just a question. Your question to me was, is it different when a white guy gets shot? I mean, uh, I think that the bigger question is about use of force. And uh, the fellow who asked about changing policies, I think there is a gradual sea change coming in police departments. And the chief and I talked about this earlier, that, uh, that there is a, a, a thought that force doesn't have to be used in every situation. And that is changing. And uh, another thing that that case that I wrote about uh, is going to help change is police transparency and the fact that uh, for 14, 16 months after the police killed a man, they didn't say anything. They didn't release his name. They didn't give any details of the incident. And uh, that's changing. And there is a, a, a gradual recognition that greater transparency can actually help the community understand what goes on. Uh, you talked about not wanting to release the tape in Laquan McDonald because that's been the practice of the department since time immemorial. Investigatory practice of law enforcement. Right. Including prosecutors and so on. Right. Not a tradition, practice. Right. I, I would urge that that change. Uh, I'm okay with it. I know you are. That's, <laughs> see, I didn't say it until I found out where you were on that issue and then I <laughs> fell right in behind you. It, it also doesn't cost anything to do that. Right. It's not a, it's not and so uh, those are two big things that have come out of a case where uh, there was secrecy, there was death, and now we're getting some positive benefit out of it. Uh, to the second question, you know, I actually think that the fact that whether it's a progressive police chief or someone who is deeply problematic like what we face in Ferguson, um, that that is a not a consequence of the movement, that is a consequence of what you were talking about, about the political nature of the role, um, and, and that you know, there are certain positions that are often made of the fall guy or a gal or a gender non-conforming person. Um, it's important to remember that. Um, uh, in, in which allows people to, um, to uh, dodge responsibility when you actually have to be looking all the way up and down the system to be making sure um, that the people who are at fault actually um, have, to, have, to, um, have to pay for that. Involved, let's just say I did the least amount of talking here. So, uh, th those uh, because we ran over time is because they're so great. So, thank you for being uh, patient with us. Um, help me thank Tom Jackman. You can find him on at Tom Jackman WP. Uh, he has a true crime blog that's fascinating. Um, you can find um, at Anise Parker, A N N I S E Parker, and follow her. This is a we have to write this down at MS. 
Pacchetti, P-A-C-K-Y-E-T-T-I. That's what my students used to call me. Because so. that's what I, and also joincampaignzero.org. You're gonna have to write uh, snail mail here because uh, he's, he's yet to put himself up on Twitter, but we'll, we'll work on it. I used to have it. a staff that did it. I got nothing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. And they tweeted Thanks. regularly in your voice with they did. your commentary. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all very much for coming and start the conversation.